Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Still and always the best horror podcast that talks about movies with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I said that a little uncertainly, but I'm confident in it. I just, you know, week to week, you never know who's going to imitate us and do what we do, but do it slightly better. So I want to make sure we leave ourselves a little bit of an out. Uh, As always, you're going to be hearing from me, Matt Monagle, and my colleague, Matt Donato. And I think my new thing that I'm going to do whenever we start an episode, Donato, is to say, Matt, how did you piss off the horror community this week? Uh, What have I done recently? I mean, there was the Fright Night thing. There was Resident Evil Gate. Um, I am writing my newest remake column that will be published by the time this airs about why the Hills Have Eyes remake is better than the original. So I don't know. We'll see who that pisses off. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah, you're. Yeah, okay. That's good. By the time you're listening to this, Donato has already gotten flamed on Twitter for his his controversial Hills Have Eyes takes. You know, this is the life you've chosen for yourself, man. I can't. I can't feel too sorry for you. I mean, the writing's good. I believe in myself, and uh, I don't give a fuck if you hate me online. <laughs> Yes, welcome to Matt Donato's emotional journey of growth here. He's not, you know, ten, five, ten years ago, maybe you'd have felt differently. Now you're just like, <laughs> check still cash. No, I still don't feel differently, but I say it out loud, so I try to feel that. Fair enough. Well, is it just the two of us today, or do we have a special guest? What if it was just the two of us? What if we fooled everybody and there's nobody else waiting on this Zencaster call to be introduced? No, of course, we have a wonderful guest. Uh, this is actually a fun one for me because this is a person I met way back at like the first Brooklyn Horror Festival. And, you know, we've kept in communication, played Friday the 13th a whole bunch. I got to murder him. He got to murder me. So it is a friendship in blood and Camp Crystal Lake waters. Uh, you know him as writer director Jackson Stewart from Beyond the Gates. So, Jackson, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me, and uh, what a what a lovely intro. Uh, my true passion of playing Friday the Thirteenth uh, for the PS4 professionally has finally come to light. So good times. Hampered by an injury, unforeseen, just couldn't get through it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I have to ask then, because this is the most important question we'll ask you today. What skin did you use for Jason? Uh, even though it wasn't that good i i really liked the part three like nes um <laughs> like skin yeah. swap where it was like bright purple with the nintendo music um that and the part eight i think were were my two favorites and like jackson was very good at playing jason so it was always <laughs> hilarious because you'd hear the little music coming do 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 and it's like the digital eight pixel music and you just know you're gonna die but it's kind of fun because you hear the music anyway well, I, it was the thing I remember with that game that was so fun was it was like, I, I think we all immediately were like, oh, we, we have to play as Jason. But it was like way more fun to play as the counselors because it was mm-hmm. so much closer to like replicating the experience of watching a Friday the 13th movie when you were a kid. And it like genuinely felt very scary. But um, yeah, I remember like we there was a there was a certain executive that we used to play with who um, rage quit one day as Jason because we, uh, we kept uh, uh, hitting him with a baseball bat and then uh, teabagging him. So it was uh, pretty fun. Yeah. I had to explain to my wife the other day um, we were scrolling through TikTok, and because my feed is curated for a lot of really good horror stuff, 
suddenly there was this like really long video of Jason getting knocked down and like eight naked men doing a coordinated dance on top of his body. And she was like, what is this? And I was like, all right, okay, okay, hold on. I'm going to, let's, I'll explain here. You watched me play a little bit of this with Donato, but here's the game. Listen, there's nothing can stop a Chad party. (laughs) Once a Chad party starts, there's no stopping it. Yeah, Matt, Matt, you used to play as as Chad in the Speedo. Right? Oh, exclusively Chad. I only played as Chad. Yep. That was the only way I played Friday the Thirteenth as a counselor. Yeah, I uh, I always liked. Um, I'm totally spacing her name now. The the blonde uh, female counterpart to Chad is it Vicky? I, I think it was. I Victoria. Think it was Victoria. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was my gal. When we spin Certified Forgotten off into a horror video game podcast and talk about the Evil Dead game and Friday the 13th and eventually Texas Chainsaw Massacre when oh. it comes out early next year. Right. This is good. This is good. We have our first official uh, Certified Forgotten spinoff all queued up. Tonight. <laughs> Just say the word. I'm ready. Exactly. I'm ready for the playthroughs too on YouTube. Let's do it. Let's Beautiful. Do it. Beautiful. Well, uh, Jackson, thank you for joining us today. That was a, a lovely detour. I wish we started more of our episodes by by talking about that game. <laughs> um, I, this is exciting for me because I know, because Donato talked about you before, and I know that, that the, the two of you have been friends for a very long time, um, and he's talked about your work a lot with me, but I haven't had the opportunity to, to you know really interact with you or get to know you at all. So this is all new information for me. I'm excited to learn more about you. And we're going to start, as we always do, kind of talking about the early days of horror. Uh, we're always kind of curious what the first movies were, and what the age was when you found yourself kind of recognizing horror as something that moved you or frightened you or excited you and uh, how you kind of embraced it or, or came to get to know more of it after that. So that's that's a really good question. It's sort of like a it was kind of like a weird bifurcated experience because like the first sort of like horror sequence i remember i think i was around six and i saw my grandparents were watching marnie the hitchcock movie and there was a sequence where she she stabbed this guy who uh you know was like attacking her mom or something and then there was this like bright red um you know like bloody pool that like formed around the guy's shirt and it scared the shit out of me and I, I remember like screaming and freaking out and um because like I, I think i'd never seen blood or anything in mm-hmm. in a movie before um and then after that i think i was i, w- I must have been around like nine or or ten maybe and i saw nightmare on elm street four which um just absolutely traumatized me it was like the you know this thing of like oh this guy can follow you around in your your dreams and you don't know when you're asleep and it can come out of anything it just was so so insanely scary and um i really wish it was like Oh, I saw the original or whatever, but it was it was part four, and mm-hmm. you know I love it. I think it's a wonderful movie. But uh, yeah, it was the Rennie Harlan entry, and I remember, um, you know, like Rodney Eastman getting killed in like the that water bed, and then you know all the blood coming out of that uh, was super horrifying. And basically, like I could not get that movie out of my head for at least a year and i just had like 
constant nightmares about it and had like a super hard time sleeping and it just really got under my skin and then I think at a certain point um I I was just like I have to like avoid horror movies completely and I spent a, a few years like if I walked by the um horror section at the video store I would like look away and I'd be like afraid of seeing something scary. And, um, you know, I remember seeing like the, I think the cover for Jason goes to hell where it was like this, like weird snake demon coming out of Jason's mask. And I was like, that is the most horrifying thing that could like ever exist, you know? And, um, at a certain point I started going to like this comic book shop and uh, read a bunch of that stuff. And then I started asking the, you know, the like cooler teenagers that worked there, what movies they liked. And they were like, Oh, you got to watch escape from New York. You got to watch RoboCop. You got to watch evil dead Two. And I was like, evil dead Two, That's a horror movie. I was like, I can't handle that. And the guy was like, no, it trust me. You can watch it. You're, you know, like it's, it's like not really that scary. It's funny, whatever. And so I was like, okay. And I was like super nervous. And then I, you know, rented it and um, I just like watched it at home and, you know, full frame CRT vision. And uh, I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. And I was just like, it was like, this is so awesome. And I showed all my, like anyone I could kind of like sucker into watching it in my neighborhood. I was like, you have to see this movie. And like, none of them dug it like at, at all. Like they were like, what? Like this lady's like fucking head got chopped off. And then she's like doing ballet with it. And this guy just like sawed his hand off. Like, I think they, they assumed I was like a serial killer or something. And, um, you know, and then like, I, it kind of became like a, like a, like a challenge where it's like, oh, I have to go and like seek out these other movies that I was afraid of and see if they're as bad as I thought they would be. And the moral of the story is, is they, they, they weren't, you know, it was like, I went and watched everything and, you know, never kind of came close to that experience. I mean, there was certainly a lot of scary stuff I watched, but you know, it's, it's best to just go and face your fears basically is the the moral there i feel like you you get only one of two career options at that point you do have to become a serial killer or you become a filmmaker that's it it's one (laughs) one or the other you have to choose yeah well well yeah i'm still still working on the uh the first one so we'll we'll see what happens so it's fun for me because usually I am listening to our guests go through their horror origins, as we call them, and it's never like me because they're always telling me about going to the video store and like going right for the horror section and how like they watched all the After Dark stuff when they were too young and things of that nature. But this is the first time I can actually say like you are mirroring exactly my way of coming into horror as well because I did the same thing with the video store and I wouldn't walk by the horror aisle and it was the ch- the child's play VHS oh cover. my god so- dude yeah in the fucking part two one holy shit like where he's got the the garden shears with the jack in the box yeah a, a thousand percent so it's just it's it's so interesting to hear that like you know you did have the same kind of upbringing that I did in the way and like horror horror comedy is also what got me into horror as well 
Um, so like just you just you read my mind on that one. And I feel like I'm finally being seen by somebody who comes on the podcast and tells me their origin. <laughs> yeah, I, it's I, I don't know why it was just it was something that it like it kind of pulled me in versus, you know, um, it wasn't just something I was like immediately drawn to. And then, you know, I mean, like once I got into it, I really became pretty obsessed with it. But um yeah, I don't know. It was like, it, it was odd. And it's like none of my other family or like anyone around me really was into that, like at all. It was basically just this, this dude, Cody, at you know, my comic book store back in Tucson that, you know, kind of clued me into this. And, and that, that was it. So, yeah. Did you, um, did you, so where did you sort of start to find your horror community for you? Was it high school? Uh, college if you did college um, any kind of like post-college experiences was there like a period where you found yourself finally meeting those like-minded folks um kind of I mean it's you know I I I met uh you know I worked in my early 20s at a Hollywood video uh up in Eugene Oregon and uh my buddy Hank uh he, we were into a lot of the same movies and then he started kind of showing me stuff outside the horror space, like, you know, Sam Peckinpah and some like, you know, Don Siegel movies and Billy Wilder and, you know, a zillion other cool things. And then that kind of, you know, got the ball rolling in a couple different directions, but um, he was definitely, he, he was an early one. And, and interestingly he ended up like producing our, blu-ray for beyond the gates later like we went on these two totally like divergent paths and then he ended up working for shout factory uh and then you know ended up getting the job to um produce our our physical disc for it which was really weird (laughs) like i was like oh this is like the guy sort of was like basing some of this off of with me and we he ended up doing this was very strange but um he was one and then uh i guess like moving into la i started kind of meeting more people um that liked a lot of this stuff but it's it's odd now it's like it's kind of like i you know there's i it's it's always odd it's like the it it being like a proper community or what have you um i'm not totally sure about that like or if i've like fully found that it's like that we we're talking about our mutual friend tyler um who directed uh tragedy girls which is a, a terrific movie if you've mm, uh yeah if you guys very, have not seen that very aware very aware of mr tyler and his movies to, to, yeah. ex- <laughs> to explain very briefly uh tyler and him have a feud going right now tyler's been on the podcast and tyler is a listener of the podcast so hi tyler if you're listening to this and, <laughs> he's, um, he's definitely listening to this he listens to most episodes um tyler earmuffs uh Yes, I think Tragedy Girls is just a phenomenal piece of 2000s horror. Earmuffs oh, off, yeah. Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, he's he's a good example. Um, you know, I, I mean, like, there's there's definitely, like, a, a, you know, a lot of my friends that are into horror, but it's, like, it's very rare. I mean, I also think some of this is just pandemic-related, but it's, like, hmm. there's not a lot of, like, everyone convenes at the same thing now it's very kind of like you know you hang out with like a small group of people or you know occasionally there's like a party but it's not like um 
it, it's it's something I still sort of hope to find, I suppose, you know. This is a little bit pre-pandemic, but, um, you know, as somebody that's on the industry side of things, do you find that, uh, you know, film festivals and things like that are an opportunity to meet like-minded people who are making these movies or audience members like Donato who are reviewing or writing about them critically? I know those that's kind of the origin for us of Certified Forgotten is Donato and I realized we were seeing a lot of the same movies, a lot of the same festivals, and there were these titles that had been sort of like lost in time that we were really passionate about. And we're like, we're going to start a podcast just to talk about found and other Brooklyn horror film festival movies that we like. So I'm, I'm always curious about, um, on the industry side, like how those sort of festivals and experiences are perceived. Uh, I mean, I love, them. it's like, you know, and I, I've met some incredible lifelong friends at those, you know, I met, um, my buddy, Jason Krawcheck, who did, he never died, you know, back on the festival circuit. I, I made like a ton of great, uh, I mean, Matt, you know, at Brooklyn, horror fest and um you know a ton of people at like fright fest and sidgis and you know some of the other ones but it's uh yeah i mean festivals are amazing it's like that you know it's there it's always kind of like nice to just like being i mean for me it's like i don't feel like there's any real delineation between what any of us are are doing at this point you know i mean it's like i think there was we kind of grew up with this thing of like oh if you're in the in movies you're here and then other people aren't like at this level or or whatever which um seems really silly to me it's like to me it just feels like you know if someone's cool uh that's great you know and like that's all i i care about you know it's like i'm not um I, I don't like sort of like excluding myself from like, like being an audience member, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I grew up watching this stuff the same way everyone else did. And, you know, it's like everyone can kind of get, you know, their thing out there and it'll, it'll do what it'll do, you know? And it's, that's, I don't know if that like makes any sense, but um, yeah, hopefully it does. Yeah, it does. I mean, there's such festivals can be such interesting breeding grounds of like crossover between, you know, like, like you said, sort of those, those lines. And I know you're talking specifically about the industry side, but I feel like you'll go to a bar and you'll have people from all, you know, all around the world, every walk of life in the industry, out of the industry, somebody who's just starting out, somebody who's been writing for decades and they're all just drinking and talking about what they loved and the movies that got them excited. So those, they become these great, uh, liminal spaces between different sides of the film industry where everything is just sort of for a week or a weekend, everything's just sort of even and cool and everybody's approachable and nobody's worried about what they're working on next. They're just being kind of present in the moment and having a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's like, I just liked, you know, when I was growing up, it's like, there was just such kind of like an icky sort of um, like lens that people viewed like, horror and comics and these other things through and now they're just you know absolutely gigantic and it's like pretty pretty much taken over the the culture Mm -hmm. and it's kind of nice to to see that you know it's like there's not like any kind of real um I, i at least i i hope there isn't like any kind of like gatekeeping on any of these like cool movies we we grew up watching and loving like it's always and it's always for me it's like really fun to introduce this stuff to people who haven't 
seen it. You know, like uh, my friend Jordan, he's like a TV writer and he'd never seen Dead Alive. And I showed that to him and now he's just like, he's just like, this is the most fucking insane thing I've ever seen. And I was just like, dude, it's going to get even crazier. <laughs> I was like, you know, like, you don't even know like w- where this movie is going to land. And he, yeah. it just kept like getting him at every turn. And it was just, it was amazing, you know? Well, I think I like the idea that, you know, horror is becoming more acceptable, obviously like that. And like you said, it's kind of blown the doors down. And the the funny anecdote is like, I introduced you to, or like I, I described you to somebody and I was like, oh, you know, Beyond the Gates. I'm like, oh, I've never seen that. I, I never heard of that. And I was like, oh, uh, also a supernatural writer. And they were like, immediately like, wait, what? Like that was the, the mind blown moment where it was like, obviously like, I know I have a bunch of people that are like, Beyond the Gates, Jackson, obviously, duh. And this person was just like, no, supernatural, on it. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. It was like uh, that that show that was actually another interesting thing, because that when I was on that, every time I talked to someone in Los Angeles about that, they were like, super what? They were like, is that the Superman show? And I was like, no, that's Smallville. Like they had no clue what it was, what it was. And it had been on for six or seven years at that point. And I was like, the fuck do people like not like how has this show been on this long how do people like have no clue that it exists it was really strange because i mean it was kind of before streaming like really took off and now it's like you know you have a show that like millions of people will watch and then it's just kind of like vaporized like a month later and then you know but everyone will have seen it and you know what have you but uh yeah, um, I don't. Uh, I completely lost my my train. I, of I mean, I just now. told an anecdote. You know, I don't even think there was a <laughs> necessary response. No, just hey, a, a funny thing. You brought up yeah. supernatural. You brought up Jensen Ackles, the pride of Austin, Texas. So you know, we're happy with it here. We're good. We're That's good. Right. Your yeah, he. Uh, uh, yeah, Jensen's awesome. Uh, I mean, I haven't I haven't seen him in ages, but he's he's just super super wonderful. Really really sweet guy. Treats the crew like gold. Um, good, good dude. And it's, it's also just great. He's like had this resurgence as like Batman. And, you know, I haven't watched The Boys, but apparently he's got like a pretty big part in that. And yeah. Very pro The Boys. Yeah. No, no, he does great in that. So it's great to hear he is not that character in real life. <laughs> that's a very, that's a no, very pro no. boys household. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's a sweetie. Well, before we talk about the movie that, that you picked for us, um, I do want to talk a little bit about your your career in Hollywood as well, because um, we talked a lot about sort of where your passions lay. And I assume part of the reason of moving out to Los Angeles was to kind of make the types of shows and make the types of movies that we've talked about today. So was that always were you just saying I wanted to go and I wanted to make what I could? Did you have kind of like you knew you wanted to focus on genre stuff? Did you have a part of the industry focusing on writing or other pieces of it? Tell me your story. Um, no, you know, weirdly, I, I mean, I'm probably going to have a bunch of people hating me for this, but I, I honestly, like I moved out of here completely on a whim. My, my friend Chris got a job at NASA and they had like a kid on the way and they were like, Hey, if you help us around our new house for three months, um, will will let you stay here for free and just you know get a job or whatever and classic you know, los angeles story classic yeah, los angeles story yeah and i was just like 
all right, sure. And, you know, I was living in Oregon. I like moved down two weeks later and I, I got a job in, in post-production. And at the time I was like writing novels and stuff. Cause and initially that was what I wanted to do was just write books and that kind of thing. And um, I ended up meeting uh, this guy, Paul Solid, who did a movie called uh, clean with Adrian Brody that just came out kind of recently. And um you know, he he was basically we just sort of became like pretty instant friends. And then he um, he was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to go make this movie and da 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 da. And uh, he was like, you should be like writing scripts and stuff like you're like really into movies and like you're already writing. And like, that seems like what you actually want to be doing. And I'm, in my head, I was just like, that's just fucking impossible. I was like, there's I was like, it just sounded like winning the lottery or something. I was like, how can you even like, like, where do you start? How do you do that? It's just, it just seemed completely insane. And then, then he like went and made his movie and it premiered at Sundance. And I saw the whole kind of path for him making that. And I was like, Oh wow. That like, he actually like did it. And now he's like working and stuff. And, um, you know, and then uh, not long after that, I got this job on Supernatural as a writer's PA. And, you know, I, I they were like, oh, you can pitch stories at the start of the year. And I was like, OK, fine. You know, and so I like pitched, you know, six or seven stories. And then basically like three months later, they were they were like, okay, here, uh, we're going to do yours. Like, um, here, here's the money. And, you know, you're in the writer's guild now and whatever. I was like, really? Like, <laughs> I was like, wow, that was easy. And then, you know, like years afterwards, like absolutely nothing happened. There would be like an occasional, just sort of like crumb thrown my way, like on, you know, the writing front or whatever. Um, and you know, I, I was, it, it just gave me this very sort of like, false sense of like the the ease of you know making things and what have you because it literally it literally was like i wrote it and it was in my hand very quickly after that and that's just that's more just kind of how tv's set up and and what have you but um you know from there it was like i you know i i didn't super dig the uh tv environment just because it was very like <sighs> there was a lot of like just sort of rigid formulaic stuff going on in in network tv where essentially you'd have to be like okay you got to hit this by this act break and da, 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 da. and essentially it's like you're just kind of like moving around pieces in a game of jenga and it's like there's you get to give it a little bit of an identity, but ultimately like there's um, and I, like, I'm not saying that to like bash supernatural at all. Like I, I think sure. it's like a really great show and um, you know, and there was like so much uh, it, yeah. I mean, I think it's like a shockingly good show for um, it being on network TV, you know, but it, it ultimately was like you get kind of a lot of interference and um certain things that you know just didn't seem like they they should be a problem really so um and that was that was also what like five years 
in real time, but a hundred years in terms of like the way that television works. Right. Yeah, so like even, totally. even if you were to go in now, I'm sure that kind of the, the experience is different because who's making, who's making cable television, who's making like broadcast mo- television well, shows anymore. Most of it's going to streamers. Yeah. And I think now it's, it's like a completely different landscape. And I, I mean, now it actually seems like there are a lot more interested in kind of like breaking the, the norms of these, these things, which is, which is really cool. But I mean, at the time it was just always like, Oh, we got to have them be in this, you know, motel and da, 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 da. And like, this has to happen here. You know? I, and I mean, it was not necessarily even from the bosses. It was more just like, you know, network and, and, you know, they had it very dialed into what, you know, people would, would keep sort of tuning into, you know, Mm -hmm. they were like, okay, we, we got our act break there. We have the, you know, a five minute commercial break and blah, 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 blah. And like, oh, this episode's running five minutes short. We need to like add a bumper for next week. And just, you know, it was like a lot of that kind of stuff where it's just being, um, th- there was a lot of just like filling airtime essentially rather than, you know, being like, let's just tell, you know, the the coolest story we can. And um, uh, not again, not on any of the creative end, like all the writers and stuff on that show were just insanely talented. And uh, I mean, frankly, it's like, I really wish a lot of the um, ideas that, you know, got pitched on it when I was there, they ended up making, but it's like, they, I mean, they turned down some like amazing episodes that I think would have been just incredible. And now it's almost like, I think if they, if they were able to like do that show now, it would probably um, they'd probably be able to do a lot of that stuff that they couldn't then because it was just too weird or obtuse. And, you know, it was just, it was sort of like a little bit at the, it, it, it came out in a little bit of a weird time in, in TV when it like, we didn't yeah. quite have the sort of like premium television experience of like HBO and, um, you know, Showtime and, you know, Netflix and Hulu and whatever, where, you know, you could do a, a Stranger Things or one of these other deals. It was like, you know, you X-Files was about as far as you could kind of take it. And, you know, um, that not to bash that show, I think it, that's also great. But yeah, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit too about how Beyond the Gates came to happen because I know there's going to be people that that maybe haven't heard that story and, and would love to hear it. For the first time. <laughs> oh man! Um, so that, that that was another that was another like really just bizarro uh, uh, series of events that kind of came together. But um, basically, I, I had another movie I was doing that just like completely cratered, and uh, I ended up going to this there was this like horror anthology thing that I was invited to. And they, I, 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 to be perfectly honest, it's like, I can't even remember the name of it at this point, but um, uh, I ended up meeting my co-writer there, Steve uh, Scarlatta. And we pretty like immediately hit it off. And then he, um, we were like talking about different ideas and then he, we were like, Oh yeah. I was like, oh, I have this idea. And he was like, I have this idea. 
he's like, you know, I've always wanted to like do this, like this movie about like a haunted VCR board game. And I was like, that's the fucking best idea I've ever heard in my life. And like, I was like, I was like, we need to start writing on that today. And like, I had this feeling like I just got like hit by lightning. And I, 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 to be honest, I haven't really had it since, but it was just like, I have to make this. And I, I just got in this mode where we were, you know, getting together constantly and, um, you know, turned out a draft in like a couple months. And then from there, you know, I basically just started approaching different like wealthy people that I would like try to find through like slated.com or some of these other um, just like random channels I knew where I was like, okay, I was like, I could probably put it together for like this much money. And I'd done, you know, some shorts and I had like a rough idea of how much, um, you know, uh, you could kind of get to, to make a movie. And, um, basically I just read up on, you know, film financing, got like a, you know, sort of decent cursory knowledge of that set up the LLC and like a bank account. And then just started, you know, going out and getting, you know, financing from people. And we got like, you know, some, some decent chunks over, I don't know, like 20 or so people, I think. And, um, you know, like a year later we were making it and it just, it, I mean, the really interesting thing about that though, was there, there was, I think two people out of that investor pool actually like wanted to read the script and it's like almost it, like, so, you know, a good rule of thumb, if you're, you know, an aspiring filmmaker or something, it's like, like really like work on your sales pitch because a lot of these people I I've like been around these other um, people who like they, you know, they might have something like really amazing and they don't quite know how to sell it. And like when I um, like one of my other jobs out here, I worked for a DVD company and I'd have to like write these like really kind of like snappy, synopses of movies you know so like when you turn it over on the back you'd want to go and and rent it and and it was like a great sort of training ground for um you know getting getting something into like a really like bite-sized digestible uh uh log line you know and in most of the time it's like people the people you're meeting with you know aren't really that interested in it like they just want to know what it like what is it and how am i going to make my money back and it's mm-hmm. like if you can put yourself in their spot and be like oh if i were in their shoes i would invest in this then like every door in the world is going to open for you and and it's also it's like it's something you really can go and do i think it's just people like don't a lot of people like don't have it like demystified for them and so it just seems like this you know, kind of obtuse and impossible thing. And, you know, obviously you have to like work on your, your craft and, and, you know, making things good and and compelling. And that's sort of a lifelong process, but, you know, really it's like, you want to just be able to go and say like, 
it's it's the certified forgotten movie and you know all your wildest dreams are going to come true if you give me five grand for this right now and i'm in fact that five grand i'm going to turn it into 50 within like the next year and then you're like okay cool you know here you go (laughs) and like that's that's a, a lot of the the deal so yeah well, you're giving us the same pitch that Tyler gave us, but we didn't invest in his movie either. So, <laughs> sorry, but you know, I I hope I hope if, if for for those of you that are listening, I hope you were paying kind of close attention to um, how Jackson was describing that process because I'm going to use that as a natural jumping off point to talk about our movie today because I I feel like a lot of the things that you've gone through as a filmmaker are probably a lot of the things that you recognize and value about this film. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about entrance. Stick around. Festival season is upon us again, and we're very excited to share that the Certified Forgotten team will be making an appearance at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival during its upcoming run between October 13th and October 20th. Join special guests Karen Coleman and Ron Magliazzi, the curators of the Horror Messaging the Monstrous program at the Museum of Honor and Art, for a screening and live podcast recording of Jack B. Nimble, the 1993 Australian horror film from Garth Maxwell. Special thanks to the team at Dark Sky Films for making this possible. And for more information, or for tickets, visit brooklynhorrorfest.com. Okay, welcome back. So on today's podcast episode, which you knew because you looked at the title of this when you were streaming it on the platforms... Uh, We're going to be talking about a 2012 film called Entrance. And I got a little blurb prepared for you with a warning at the end of it, so pay close attention. Entrance tells the story of Susie, an aimless 20-something struggling to find a place for herself in Los Angeles. In love with a roommate and navigating the vague dangers of being a woman in the big city, Susie suffers through a series of setbacks. First the loss of her car, then the loss of her dog. She seems poised to leave Los Angeles entirely, but soon realizes that all the little frustrations of her life may share one horrifying and dangerous common factor. That feels like the intro to a a film. That feels like the description of a first act of a movie. And the warning that I want to give you is that what I described is actually pretty much the majority of the film. Uh, Entrance is a film that is, I don't want to say that that it takes a, a left turn because I don't think that's the case, but it is a movie that moves very slow for a very long time until it suddenly doesn't and won't for the rest of the movie. So if now, of course, is a good time to stop. If you want to watch the movie, it's on all the usual streaming places. Know that you're going in for something that's going to be very gentle and ambient for a long time, and then not at all gentle after that. Entrance. Jackson, what made this the movie you wanted to talk about on the show? It was really interesting. So I uh, saw this like completely on a... Just through another very random set of events, uh, a friend of mine was like, hey, do you want to go see this movie tonight? It's playing, you know, downtown. And um, I was like, sure. So I went and watched it. And um, actually, no, I think it was it was Ty. Ty West was like he was like emceeing it or, or he was like the moderator for it. And we used to do karaoke. Um, at Bigfoot Lodge over in Los Feliz for, you know, a few years. And it was, it was kind of around that time. And basically they were like, Oh, Ty's moderating this thing tonight. Do you want to go? And I was like, sure. Didn't know a single thing about it. Um, I went and, you know, and I, I, it was like a pretty 
you know, packed audience for it. And um, it really freaked me out. Like it like really got under my skin and bothered me, you know, specifically there's like a sequence where um, Susie, the, you know, the lead actress, she's, it, it starts just in like total darkness. And then like this flash goes off from a camera and it takes this photo of her and then it's like black again and another flash goes off and it was absolutely fucking terrifying it it was just it was one of these things where i i everyone in the audience was like no fuck like in like you you know got that kind of reaction that that it's just so so rare to get in in horror movies you know i i mean even um uh today but you know i mean it was like it got into this thing of like well what are you really afraid of and um it just fucking creeped me out like big time and you know and afterward um you know like i mean there's that you know you mentioned this this part where it really ramps up but it's like i i just I loved like how kind of like deliberate and, and thoughtful the movie was. And it's like, it keeps kind of doing these things you, you hope it won't, you know, where you're like, please don't let anything happen to this dog. And then it's like, Oh, well they kidnapped the fucking dog and um, you don't know what happened to it. And it's so, it's kind of so much scarier in your mind than just, you know, showing some like gratuitous thing of like a, you know, a dog getting like, you know turned into barbecue or whatever because you're just like oh, is mm-hmm. he keeping it is he neglecting it like what the fuck is he doing to it you know do you leave it on the side of the road and and yeah that that sequence where she like w- you know wakes up and you know he's like i'm gonna go kill all your friends now it, it's just super terrifying and you're you're with her while she's like hearing all this stuff going on around her and you get you know, a few little snippets of it, but um, it just really kind of like blew me away when I, when I saw it. And it's, it's a movie um, that I'm, I'm sort of surprised is just not like more well known or that more people kind of haven't discovered because it's like, you know, it's done for not very much money and like the execution of it is just off the charts. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like they, I think they, you know, did it for like five figures or something. And it's really pretty damn impressive. So um, that was, it's just, I, I, I love this movie. And I've always kind of wanted to like shine more of a, a spotlight on it because it's like, I feel like it's a, a very kind of wrongly underseen movie. So there are normally when I, I sit down to watch a film, I don't usually prep questions um, for our guests because I kind of like to see where the conversation goes. And that's not normally a thing. I have two very specific questions that I want to talk about on on this, because I think that they're really important to your understanding of the film. So uh, I'm actually going to, I'm going to ask Donato first, because Jackson, I want to kind of build off of what you said. A lot of the reviews when this film came out um, kind of beat it to death for its, for its pacing. And the fact that it feels like, and, and as I was watching it, I will admit, it, it feels like a short film that has been blown up to feature length in a lot of ways. 
Um, it came out sort of at the tail end of Mumblecore, and it has a lot of the same semi-scripted looseness that what we think of that genre and the filmmakers that that made it has that. So I think that the it's what an 84 minute movie, an hour of that is is more of like a traditional Mumblecore type film. Donato, I want to talk about how that sets up and whether that pays off well for you, because that's going to be a barrier to, to some horror fans. I guess so for me, my interpretation of it and the way I was kind of digesting the film and the cinematography especially is I approached it more like a found footage movie in a way uh, and the way mm. the camera was very intimate and it just followed the, the character closely and it wasn't framed like a normal narrative. It was framed in a way that the camera was being held by someone right behind her and it, it was closely following her and the shots where she's across the street like... I was waiting to see how that specifically paid off. And you're talking about the payoff and talking about going through the first hour and it is slower. Um, I was able to focus on that because I was like, there's intent here. There's intent with the way that they are framing her. There is intent with, as Jackson said, that magnificent scene where like, it is just a regular, you know, it's not found footage. So technically someone shouldn't be there holding the camera, Mm -hmm. but the camera's positioned right over them. It's complete blackout. And it's like, not short either. It's like blackout for like a minute because I looked up and down. I looked up and down and I'm like at, at the clock below and I'm like, how, how long is it going to do it? And then the flash goes off in the bulb and someone is there. And that someone there all of a sudden you're like, well, is that person holding the camera this whole time? Is that person supposed to be like, you know, is that the eyes? Is the camera their eyes seeing them from so far away? So again, going back to your actual question and saying the payoff for me, it does pay off because they are meticulous with the way that they present the information and present the way that the character is kind of like unassumingly walking around Los Angeles. And yet the camera is like leering and stalking her. And that is what we end up with. We end up with an actual stalker payoff that we have not seen the entire time. Like the great red herring of the uh, not creepy, but just, you know, misunderstood in a way crusher guy who is like, Oh, I really like you. I'm sorry. Is it uncomfortable that you're here? And he goes downstairs to get the drinks and you're like, Okay, so he's going to turn the power off. He's going to be the one that goes crazy at the end. But like, no, some completely op- like separate character has been following them the whole time. And all the clues are there if you listen to them, like just an offhanded piece of dialogue of Susie walking in going like, oh, the garage door was open. Like, unassuming, sure, you left the garage door open. But no, you put all the clues together and it makes sense now that the garage door is open because the killer snuck in and the killer has been following her the entire movie. X, Y, Z, payoff, done. I think it works. That is my that is my interpretation, my analysis. And same question for you, Jackson. And probably I was this a first time watch for you, Donato? Yes, this was this was first time for me. Same for me as well. Then I'm curious, Jackson, having seen this before, how does that first hour play knowing where it's headed for you? I, I mean to me it's like it's always it's always worked for me. And it's like I, I like I don't feel like a, a lot of my favorite movies, you know, if they if it goes somewhere that you know, they, they really stick the landing. I'd watch it for 15 hours, you know, mm-hmm. and another one of my favorite movies, um, uh, is, uh, the vanishing, the, the original, um, George Sluizer film. And a lot of that movie has some, some similarities to this where it's like, Oh, they're arguing and you know, you're at the back of this guy's head and, you know, then she goes into the convenience store and then he's like kind of frantically pacing, like wondering what the fuck happened to her. And I, I've watched that movie so many times. It's like never 
I, I've never felt it's like slow or not going anywhere. And it's like a lot of the time it's like, you're just looking at a shot of, you know, it, like a medium shot of a guy in a driver's seat mm-hmm. and you know, he's talking in, in French or whatever. And you're in like, I'm totally riveted by it. And, you know, I think with this one, it's just it being done through that kind of like stalker lens and like doing that. So smartly and accurately is, is, um, really impressive it's like they don't you know construct this just like a normal you know thriller where they're they're just trying to like you know do their their audition for you know like whatever the the studio version of this would be it's like they they basically were like let's just make this like as kind of scary as as this would be in in real life or at least that's how i i i thought of it and you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever had like one of these experiences where you're like out in public somewhere and then like one of your friends like texts you a photo of yourself or something like if they just like spot you somewhere or like if you're getting coffee or something. That's definitely like a thing that happens when you're in a, a big city. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like there's something really freaky about that. Of just like there might be like some person who's just kind of glued to your every move and you're totally oblivious to it. Like that's like real horror to me. So, so yeah, I mean the first hour it's like, I, you know, I think it's all pretty purposeful and in there for a reason. And, you know, I, I, I still dig it. I'll admit that, that I struggled a little bit um, with it kind of until you get to the end. Right. Because like the, the ending, the last 20 minutes, retroactively makes you rethink everything that came before. And I think one of the things that's that's fascinating to me about the film that I think plays particularly well now at this moment, because we're sort of inundated in both a good way and sometimes a cynical way with films that are exploring, you know, gender dynamics, misogyny, certainly the Me Too movement. There's a lot of filmmakers that are sort of exploring the vague unease of of presenting as a woman in public, right? And I think that this movie does a rather remarkable job of making every man just every in, interaction with a man just like a little off, whether that's the the group of people that Susie walks by on the street or the guy who's like way into Briani in the coffee shop. Like every person that she meets has sort of like a thin level of veiled threat about them. And I don't think you really appreciate that level of discomfort that you're feeling until you recognize that one of the random people that she did come across is actually the the worst case scenario. And it's so fascinating to think about this, like without underlining it ever in the film, the two directors, uh, Patrick Horvath and Dallas Hallam are able to sort of set the stage for what happens just by having every, like just walking down the street multiple times and having every walk be just a little uncomfortable because people are taking note of you or catcalling you or reaching out to you or something it's, it's, a, you know, I've lived in New York before and I know from talking about friends and personal experiences, like, you know, that my wife calls me when she's walking home from places. That's a New York holdover. She wants to oh, be on wow. the phone with me just because you, you know, that's what you do. And I think it taps into that level of unease in a really interesting and, and fun, fun, maybe the word, a fun way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's almost just more like, I feel like that's just a, you know, I, I, I didn't really, really look at it as like a, a gender issue. To me, it was like much more like this is very much what it's like living in the city when you're, you know, you have just complete strangers around you. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, like I feel like the movie's kind of gotten more effective as time has sort of gone on when there's, 
you know, these like mass shootings and just other sort of like horrific stuff happening on like a, it seems like it's like almost every 15 minutes now. It's just like you could go in somewhere and it's like, you don't really know if like there's some psychopath in there, you know, who's, who's got like an AR 15 hidden somewhere and they're, you know, just going to unload and everyone or what have you, you know, it's it just, to me, it's like, it's always done like a really good job of getting into this sort of, it, it, it's almost like a, there's sort of like an agoraphobia about it, of mm-hmm. just like being out in the world and like how kind of terrifying that can be. Um, I mean, frankly, it's like, I think a lot of that stuff is just so much more around all of us than we ever realize or, you know, would like to acknowledge. Um, uh, and yeah, I, it's just it, like that. It, it, it just feels like she, you know, her character is so relatable and like, you know, wherever you are on the gender spectrum, I think anyone can empathize with her, you know, like she just really feels like someone um, like I could identify with or, or what have you. And so, you know, I, I, I really liked that and appreciated it. I mean, I think your, your comments certainly are totally applicable to it, but you know, the way I looked at it was just like, God, this is very, unsettling you know and it's just like you don't know if someone you know you meet someone on like a dating app or something it's like what's going on with them or Mm -hmm. what you know i mean it's like a lot of this shit is way more scary than we ever kind of like give it give it credence to because we just kind of like naively assume like oh nothing bad will ever happen to me and like that's you know kind of kind of childish i suppose but I think there's an authenticity, like you're saying, and both of you actually are saying to it, and it's not a Hollywoodized version of anything. It is very much a smaller budget, just a DIY horror film that feels n- normal and genuine and how we would kind of go about our days and react as well. Like that is that is may- maybe leading to some of the quote unquote like slowness that could be perceived. But at the same time, like that's why it's also a little terrifying because these are people that we see every day and these are characters that we understand. And um, my very brief anecdote that I will tell is like Jackson. Yes. A hundred percent. What you're saying about like walking around and being like, Oh, like anyone can notice you where you are. Um, I was at a specific premiere with my friend Perry, who I do a live uh, stream with every Friday and someone just nicely as I guess they wanted to just call to attention that like they knew we were there I, me and her are standing online about to go in and all of a sudden like we get a notification on twitter and someone who neither of us know but who has clearly watched the live streams and clearly knows who we are like s- tweeted at both of us a picture of us from like across the street being like i found the celebrities that i wanted to meet at the premiere and it was just like me and her and we're like had no idea like this person was just somewhere we don't know where and took a picture of us and like it is a hundred percent that thing of like, did they mean it with ill intent? No, I'm, I do not think so. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, no, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, no, I don't want to know that that can happen at any time. Like, Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, you don't, you know, like uh, funny enough, a different Matt, <laughs> uh, my friend, Matt Leslie, who did, um, he was one of the writers of uh, summer of 84. I was like walking around Larchmont, um, this, this neighborhood in uh, Los Angeles. And I was going to get like a, poke bowl or something and you know he texted 
a photo of me like from from the back you know of, like me walking down the street he's just like oh dude he's like i see you and i was but it's like you think about you're like yeah it's funny and like he's just you know goofing around but you're like what if that person's not goofing around and they have some really warped ideas about you that you're not going to be able to reason with them in any way shape or form it's really fucking scary like uh, you know it also just kind of post pandemic like the the fear of people i think is like really fucking gone through Mm -hmm. the the roof you know and it's like just taking sort of like a rocket ship as you kind of see just the sort of like the ugliest aspects of humanity (laughs) kind of coming to light on like a you know pretty frequent basis you're it, it it's just like god you don't really know what's um what's going on in people's heads and so that's um yeah i, I think it's a great point you made yeah that's entrance <laughs> like, <laughs> and that actually leads me to the second question that i wanted to ask both of you um you know i think the universality of what both of you are talking about the you know, wandering is sort of blindly moving through public spaces and being like, nothing bad could happen to me here. I think that the movie really taps into that. But I know that there's a very, a very specific depiction of Los Angeles in this film as well. And I want to read a quote from the director, one of the directors, because I think it's, it's an interesting quote and provides context to what they were thinking when they made it. This is from Dallas Hallam. Everyone in the film, except for one person, was transplanted to the city. Many of us have gone through what Susie's going through, minus some of the horror, of course, but we've all been lonely here. It's a very difficult city. So I'm curious because both of you are Los Angeles transplants. I know that there's the romanticized version of Los Angeles. I know there's like the dark version of Los Angeles. We just talked about Bit on a show uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is a great but very different depiction of life in Los Angeles. How do you feel about the presentation of LA and sort of the, the loneliness and isolation component that the filmmakers are playing with here? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like it just really effectively nails it, you know, because it's like, you do get these, you know, it's like, oh, we go to the movies or this or, you know, whatever thing, but it's like most of your time, um, you know, I mean, unless you're, you've got like a family or something and actually even then it's like, you do kind of have your own very sort of like singular experience if you're going to work or these other areas and it's like generally like you do spend a lot of time alone in like a pretty huge city because even you know it's like when you go it's like a cafe or something if you're not with a friend there it's like you don't really know the people around you and you're just sort of like okay well you know here's the dude behind the counter or whatever that i you know talk to for 30 seconds you know once a day and that (laughs) like that's that's that. And, uh, you know, to me, it's like, I, I think it, it kind of, it, it dug pretty deep on a lot of that stuff because, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of movies like the player and, you know, sunset Boulevard and, um, a, you know, Mulholland drive and, you know, a zillion other ones that have their kind of like lens of how, um, the city is. But I think with this one, it's, uh, you know, it, it hits pretty close to home, I would say, you know, it's like, it's just, it's very, it's very matter of matter of fact about a lot of that. And, you know, I, I, I kind of like the, the low techness that it's not, um, you know, it's like there, there isn't any of these like big sort of like, 
like I feel like a lot of um, indie movies, it's like they get kind of like a self-conscious thing of like trying to make it bigger than it needs to be mm-hmm. or trying to like sort of trick people with like their budget or whatever. And it's like, you don't really need to, I, I like this because it's kind of a great example of like why you don't need to do that. And like why you can just shoot it, do it with a very specific point of view and have it be effective, you know? And it's like, I, I, I mean, I, I know, I also know the two directors of this, um, you know, Pat, uh, Horvath I'm, I'm pretty decent friends with and he uh, you know like I, there, there was a point where I, this movie was like you know pretty had like a pretty good chance of getting out there a lot more than it kind of mm-hmm. did and you know it's like some there was some some people that saw it and you know were, were pretty impressed by it and you know to me it's like I I just, uh, I don't know. It's like, I just want more folks to get exposed to this movie, basically. And to to your point, um, in interviews, I actually did an interview with Fangoria. The directors talk about the fact that Susie in the film is a waitress because the actor that played Susie in real life was a waitress at that particular place. So the entire $6,000 was their initial budget and everything they did, they were just like, we can't fake our way out of it. We have to make the movie that is as true to the people and the places that we have access to as we can. So spot on with that. Donato, where's your LA experience on this? Does it read as authentic? I mean, it's hard because as most people know, like I moved here half a year, a little more over half a year before the pandemic. So like my LA experience has mostly been my apartment. Uh, I, I think <laughs> the interesting thing is though, to what, you know, Jackson was kind of saying, and also like saying to the community aspect that we've touched on before. And I kind of agree with Jackson and his comments about the community as well, because I feel like out here, all of my friends were people I knew already who I didn't meet in LA. Like everyone I'm actually like best friends with are people I've either met in New York city and they moved out here already or at a festival, uh, Jackson and stuff like that. Like the hilarity of actually saying like, I hung out more with Jackson outside of LA than I have actually since I've lived in LA. (laughs) It's totally true. And like, that's not a knock by any mean. That's not calling anybody out. Like I feel like Los Angeles is this place where you think everyone is hanging out 24 seven, but the reality is like either they're hustling and working and they never want to go out and do something or you just keep playing like tag or something like that because everyone has like other plans, stuff like that. And they just don't want to go somewhere. Like the traffic's bad that day. Um, Yeah. New York city. (laughs) Yeah. Like New York city for me was just so much more accessible. Um, And I lived there for eight years and you had the subway, you had all these things. So like it was just so much easier to go out with people and be around people where LA you are, you feel like you're more in a bubble and you do feel isolated sometimes because there are those weekends where like you want to do something, but no one wants to do something that weekend. And the next weekend, you don't want to go out because you're having like effects from the pandemic and you don't want to see people and they want to. So, yeah, it's it's a little interesting. And it, I think it does nail the vibe of Los Angeles being this place that we all glamorize. But in the same way, it it, it feels very much not like that when you actually live here. Big time. So then my last question for both of you, because I don't want to get out of this podcast without talking about it at least a little bit, is the final home invasion sequence, which I think is just setting budget aside, like on an equal playing field with every other movie that exists. I think it's just an all timer. It is just a, a banger of a home invasion sequence. And so 
I just want to have you two, I mean, talk about what it is, why, what makes it such an effective sequence? Why, why it's so much more uncomfortable that movies that are doing 10 times as much to try and capture the same effect. Well, you know, for me, like the, the thing that that's always kind of like resonated with that is it's like, you stay with her the entire time. It's not like you're like, you don't get this thing of like, Oh, let's do the fucking door slams open. And you know, this guy bursts through and, whatever it's like you get these snippets of of things that she's like struggling to you know get out of this and free herself and you're hearing like the chaos and commotion of it and it's like that's how it would be you know it's like if you've watched any of these true crime um series or you know unsolved mysteries or any of this stuff it's like there's so many cases of like oh this person got tied up and then had to like listen while this other person like you know brutally murdered their spouse or you know did some god-awful thing to them and you think about that and you're just like oh my god like how fucking like how horrible is that it's like you you almost would like rather be killed than like just have to suffer through that and seeing her you know just like fighting her way through this you know and then it's like you know trying to fucking escape with her like hands tied behind her and stuff it's it it really makes it it just makes it feel real and you know and and not in like a not in like this like slimy exploitive way you know it's like it, it to me it almost reminded me of uh i don't know if you guys have seen henry portrait of a serial killer but it's like a gonna kind of spoil that too but there's a sequence in it where they they do there's like a home invasion and they basically like the two serial killers like kill the entire family and it's like absolutely fucking terrifying you see you know um tom tolls who's you know playing otis and michael rooker you know playing henry and it's like it's like a joke to them and it's like the family's like pain and horror is feels very real you know and it's like it's not done in like a titillating way it's done how it would be in real life where you're you know horribly traumatized by it i mean actually that movie henry portrait of a serial killer on a real quick tangent was one of the few movies i saw in my teens that that kind of like made me feel how I did initially watching horror movies where it like really like I kind of couldn't get that movie out from under my skin for about a month. You know, it's like I just was like, oh, God, like, what the fuck did this? this I rent when I was a teenager, I rented it like three times and I still to this day have not watched it. It's just like it feels like a movie that might be a little too much. Yeah, dude, it it is. uh It's it's like a once every like 20 year watch, I would say. I mean, it's like it's an incredible movie, but it had some of that, that um, kind of feel to it. And it's like, they, I, I like when they present these things, you know, I mean, like, look, I love exploitive slasher movies too, as much as the next guy or like crazy, you know, Italian giallos or uh, whatever. And it's like, I can have great fun with that stuff, but you know, I think for, um, whatever your your intent is as as an author a lot of that has to come through with how you execute it and the way they pulled that off i think just completely nailed it like they clearly went after we want to do this real like how fucking scary this would be 
if this happened to you. And um, I think they, you know, got like a an A plus plus on on that sequence. You know, I mean, it's like it's something. You know, ten years later, I've still it's still really stuck with me. And you know, especially like the final shot of her. You know, and he's like cradling her with like the city behind them. It's just mm. so fucking upsetting, and um, you know, it really, it it really just bothers you. And I will just go off that ending. Well, actually, I won't start the ending because I do think the ending is goddamn brilliant because it it doesn't fool you with a happy ending. It doesn't need a final girl. It doesn't do any of this stuff. It really just hammers home the horror and everything that you've just witnessed and. You know how quickly this slow burn and all that stuff can just bo- it boils over and it just gets worse and worse and worse and then just ends. But also, it, uh, I think the entire finale uh, for when she gets tied up and, you know, kind of contained and the rest of her friends are upstairs not knowing like the music is loud. And as you both alluded to, we don't really see the carnage that happens ab- above ground, we'll say it, until she goes up and surveys the bodies and everything after the math. And it's just really smart filmmaking on the director's parts because they understand what they could pull off and they understand what budget they had. And instead of kind of, you know, maybe slapdash blowing through a home invasion sequence where we see the killer do all these things and we, we see maybe janky effects and things of that nature. Um, it's, they find a way to make the horror of, of the home invasion of effective and they find a way to do it with the means that they have. And it's kind of a lesson in saying like less is more and speaking to imagination as well. I believe that Jackson mentioned before about the dog. You, you don't know what happens to the dog. And it's almost worse because your imagination makes dogs fine. Yeah. Dogs, well, it's, it's, gotta be fine. <laughs> it's also just like you think about it and you're just like, how much more fucked up is, if, is it, if that is his dog now, it's like, to me, it's yeah. like, that is way scarier than like, going and killing it or because then you're just like okay well at least it doesn't have to live with this horrible person it's like then it's just like oh my god like how fucking it's like you don't even want to think about it it's so upsetting you know so um but yeah i i I mean i know the i'm sure the dog is fine (laughs) i'm I'm sure he just you know took it to a great dog park and then passed it off to to another fine owner but that is, I think that's the trick that the film plays on you. It turns your imagination against you and it knows what it can do and it knows what it can't do. And it doesn't try to push into any areas that it can't pull off without effective uh, tools. And it delivers a finality that is a massive payoff. And again, it does so in a way that it can do. And like more, more movies need to learn that. Like you don't have to give what you think the audiences want if you can't give it to them in a way that they will actually appreciate it. So I think entrance nails the idea that I'm going to tell you the story, how I want to tell it, but also I'm going to be smart enough not to overplay our hand. And we're going to do exactly what we know we can do to the best quality. And they found a way to really do that. So like that is the finale to me. Yeah. Big time. And so to wrap things up, we usually like to end by saying, how does this film find the audience? And Jackson, you alluded a little bit earlier to there being a moment in time where this film could have been bigger, where it could have kind of captured the the fading or rising or peak mumble gore and really <laughs> connected with moviegoers. And this is, I believe, this is an IFC release or at least an IFC yeah, production. Yeah, so this is this is not something that was, you know, 
some fly-by-night virtual streamer that's gone out of business since. This is one of the premier horror distributors in the country. So how does this film find its audience going forward? You know, I mean, it's it's been really interesting, like, not to name drop or whatever, but, like, you know, I... I I'm friends with Brian Usna and I consider him a mentor and he's, you know, I met, actually I met him on the festival circuit, but one of the things he's, he's told me, you know, he, for people who haven't seen it, he directed this movie society. That's just fucking incredible. Like that, another great Los Angeles movie, please watch it if you haven't seen it. But, um, you know, he was telling me about that movie when it came out and he, he was like, yeah, the reviews were horrible. They said uh, it was like the equivalent of rough gay porn in variety or, or not or in uh, variety. Sorry. And um, you watch it now and you're just like, this is like the most insanely prescient movie of like in the horror space of like the past 30 years. And, you know, it was one of those things when it's like, I feel like these these movies always kind of have a life to them. And it's like, you really get a sense of where they land, you know, over the course of like a, a few decades, basically, which, you know, I feel like it's kind of by doing stuff like this and, you know, having people um, hear about it on, you know, great podcasts like this and some of these other, you know, and then through journalists and these other people where, you know, this stuff kind of gets rediscovered. And, um, you know, like one when I was like a teenager, it's like just this stuff like didn't fucking exist. Like you couldn't find out about any of these movies. Like if, you know, you essentially just had to like, what I had to do was just go through and watch everything, you know, at the video store. And I was just like, you know, and I sat through some real junk, but, you know, but then I would find like, you know, a return of the living dead three or like, a, you know, um, like a, a the burning or edge of the axe or madman or deep red and some of these other things and um you know they become like lifelong favorites of mine so you know it, it's i i think it's gonna kind of find its way through through things like this and hopefully i can be a very very tiny part of that but yeah well, we love our champions at certified forgotten donato does that sum it up for you anything you want to add yeah, I mean, I just, I just did a quick Google while Jackson was uh, talking because I was like, you're right, IFC does good with Blu-rays usually. Um, I, I think this would have been pre-IFC Midnight, so they didn't actually mm-hmm. have the Midnight banner doing their Blu-rays and stuff of that nature. And there actually is just a DVD you can buy for like $25. And when I say you can buy, Amazon only has one left in stock because it's at some random distributor in like the middle of nowhere who just has yeah. a copy somewhere. So there's never been a Blu-ray for it. And I feel like this is one of those movies that a um a subsidiary of like vinegar syndrome eventually gets a hand of and once the rights are well enough they can actually do a bigger release and do like one of those like boutique releases that gives it the attention maybe it deserves and maybe it's not in five years maybe it's you know in 2030 or something like that but like i feel like that's the only way it gets it it gets more eyes on it because you know we, we say it every time, like it's on Amazon Prime. That doesn't mean anything because Amazon Prime doesn't promote anything and you don't know what's on Amazon Prime half the time. So the the way to find this movie has already, the time has passed in a way for it to really hit that spike. But I do think there is there could be a boutique release that does a little better for this. And 
gives it the attention for the right people like the people who are hungry for this micro budget or not micro but like lower budget um and i think of like brad henderson and who loves films of this nature and you know he has one of the subsidiaries at vinegar so i think that's probably where you get your a a little more bump if you can get there other than that jackson same thing word of mouth it's it's just word of mouth totally well there you have it that's our entrance conversation. And I think when I was reading the synopsis of this, because they didn't have you writing it, Jackson, so it wasn't as punchy as I wanted it to be. <laughs> Nonsense. I did, not, I did not think that this was the conversation we were going to end up having, but I, I really, truly did love this film. And I think, I mean, I think this is movies like this are the reason that Donato and I do this is because we want to, like, there was just a, a period of digital distribution where so much stuff happened all at once and no human being could have possibly organized it or made sense of it or kept what was good you need time and so movies like this we hope will will last uh, and endure in the years to come jackson i want to say thank you so much for coming on the show i don't know if there's places where you encourage people to follow you if you're on any kind of social media if you keep a website <laughs> or something what's the best no. place man um no i i'm really kind of like not on social media <laughs> to be honest like good i for you Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, um, I'm working on a, a couple new projects. There should be something before the end of the, the year that will, will hopefully uh, be announced. But um, I don't know, just, you know, stuff will land on blogs and whatever. And, you know, in the meantime, it, um, I don't know, listen to the commentary on beyond the gates. I have no idea. <laughs> I really like, uh, I, I mean, the, the, yeah, I, I, I wish there was like some sort of a easy channel to, uh, get to me, but, um, you know, then again with this, this movie, who knows, it's like, do you, you never know, but, um, if you need to, if you need to get hold of Jackson, log on to the now dusty servers of Friday the 13th, Run yes. up to every Victoria you see and be like, "Did you direct Beyond the Gates?" And yeah, maybe they can, someday they can one of them will say on, yes. Yeah, they can find me on uh, the PlayStation Network. Uh, I'm, there we I'm, go. I'm easily findable there. <laughs> there we go. Donato, how do people get a hold of you if they want to know what outrage you're inspiring this week? Yeah, I am way too online because you can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Uh, I will have writing. I, I write every week. I do this every week. I don't know. Just follow me, and I say what I wrote. That's it. There you go. That's all you need. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. And as always, please, please, please check out certifiedforgotten.com. We've got a lot of really good articles coming up. Donato just finished an edit on one today. And the only note he gave me in the Google Doc was, this is real Matt Monagle shit. So (laughs) I'm excited to read it. I think you're going to be excited to read it too. Uh, Support our amazing writers. And for those of you that do, we couldn't do it without you. We appreciate you so much. Jackson, something tells me we'll invite you back on the show someday with some other underseen early 2010s horror. So we'll look forward to that day. I can't wait. I, I will. I'll come back as many times as you guys will have me on. Donato, take us out, man. The dog is okay. Yes, thank God. Thank fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs>